I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Today is part one of a two-part episode with one of my all-time favorite thinkers, Adam Robinson. Now, you're probably wondering, why is Adam one of Sean's favorite thinkers? And the reason is, is his breadth of experience. I mean, Adam was the founder of the Princeton Review. He's a, a rated chess master and advisor to large head funds and financial institutions. And he really uses a unique approach that combines game theory and behavioral economics to outthink global markets and anticipate when major trends will change. Adam can talk about so many different topics, it's almost mind-boggling. But what I appreciate most is how he can deconstruct and distill down any complicated topic into its essence and most important concepts you need to understand. And that's a lot what we talk about. We discuss many things, but some of the most important things we discuss are the epiphany that Adam had that has forever changed his life, and this took place six years ago. Also, we discuss getting clarity around the things that don't make sense and the ideas that Adam feels have been most impactful for his life. And we also dive into the most important questions you can ask yourself. And what was the question he asked Warren Buffett when he sat down with him? So get ready to expand your thinking and learn how to go from theory to action with Adam Robinson. I am thrilled to tell you about my new online personal growth course called You Unleashed. You Unleashed is for those people looking to burst through the walls of their previous limitations and fears and tap into their greater potential, or what I call your You Unleashed self. This course is a culmination of the best things I've learned being a professional athlete, entrepreneur, investor, and spending thousands of hours sitting down with world-class performers on this podcast to uncover what you need to raise your potential to a new level. This course is going to give you clarity of what an extraordinary life looks like and who you need to become in order to achieve that life. Now, I'll provide you with the mindsets, behaviors, and actions you need to bring out your unleashed self. You'll uncover your deeper why, your values, and your life philosophy that will guide you moving forward. So the question is, why haven't you unleashed your full potential yet? You only get one shot at this life, so what are you waiting for? You're meant to become extraordinary. We all are. So if you're interested in stepping into your potential and cultivating the type of life you've been dreaming of, then check out my You Unleashed course by clicking below or going to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. And because you listen to the podcast, I'm giving you 50% off the entire course for a limited time by using code WGYT. That's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed and use code WGYT for 50% off. Adam, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great. Very much looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I, I, I've been really lucky. I feel like over the years, I've had some really in-depth, mind-opening conversations. But what I love about the conversations with you is you always up-level whoever you're talking with or, or to. 
And I hope we can do that with the audience, provide them some practical rules that, that they can apply to their own lives. But I would love to start with a concept that you opened my eyes to, and that's around inhalation and exhalation. So, you know, the, there are all kinds of books on productivity, how to get more out of your day, how to be efficient, you know, how to manage your time. And time is a more uh, fluid concept. And I'm talking actually about a practical, on a practical level. And so, so I divide up the rhythms of, of my day and even weeks and, and months and years with the notion of inhalation and exhalation. And even in a conversation, right? Like I'm speaking now, so I'm exhaling. And then you'll start speaking and I'll shift into inhalation mode. I'll be listening, you know, reflecting on what you're saying as I prepare to exhale again. And so, so you know, I, I work in the world of ideas and making them a reality. And so it starts, any idea starts with a, an inspiration, right? So you consume information with an aim to, as you say, up-level, get inspired, and that's the inhalation phase. And then, then you've got to work out the inspiration, the logical ingenuity parts of it, and actually implement it in the world, just exhalation stage. And so, and that applies for me even geographically. So for example, I, I bounce back and forth between um, LA and New York. And in, in LA, I'm in the, 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 the mountains of Bel Air. So it's very actually isolated. Um, and so there I go to be alone and just inhalation mode. And I just came back to New York. So now I'm in exhalation mode, things to do. And um, so I, I think it's a helpful metaphor for people to navigate the rhythms of their day and so, for example, even within a day, when I wake up, I'm in inhalation mode, getting ideas, getting inspiration. So I wake up every morning at 3 a.m. And because I like quiet time. And so from 3 till about 6.30 or 7, fully inhalation mode. And then oh, it's time to start executing on those emails or that, that presentation I have to give. And if you think about it, even someone like Buffett, who reads nonstop, all inhalation mode. Because <laughs> his exhalation is very, okay, we're going to buy that company. Good. And then, and then back to inhalation mode. And so it's a, it's a very helpful metaphor for, for navigating the, the rhythms of your life and your energy levels and, and everything. You know, so it's really not, how do I get the most use out of my time? It's how do I divide up my time? Like right now, I'm feeling kind of lazy. I don't mean in this moment, but someone might say, oh, hmm. but I'm feeling inspired. Okay, then just do inhalation stuff. Then exhalation. Uh, I'm wondering Again, if I'm, yeah. yeah, no, I, I'm just curious. It, it, do one of those, do they have a greater benefit for you? Right, like you mentioned around ideas. Is inhalation, do you view that as your strength? So... Yes. Short answer is yes. And like strength as in an edge in the world. Yeah. So I've, I've really cultivated that part because the execution 
I can now pass that off to people that that's their strength on the executing and exhalation. And, um, but there's a part of execution that, that I never realized until recently, Sean. And I had always, I say recently in my life, only about six years ago. So I'd always lived in a world of ideas and I succeeded on the basis of those ideas. And, and I was very much an introvert. And literally one day I woke up without, there was no catalyst, it's about six years ago. And uh, I woke up and I went, wow, there are people in this world. <laughs> I could have a lot of fun. And I, it was really an epiphany. And, and, and I, I was wide-eyed about people the way a child would be walking into a candy store, like, oh boy. And, and so I set out to really engage others in the same way that someone might train for the Ironman and CrossFit or train to do this, to shoot free throws. I trained to engage others, really, really went about it systematically. And, and you know, if you want to do anything in the world, Sean, and, and you, it's going to involve other people. And, and, and I, I, this doesn't matter whether it's on a personal level or on a professional level, that um, really it's the ability to get someone else excited about the vision that you've created. So somebody says, yeah, I wanna do that with you, Sean, whether the person is an investor or, um, or a friend or whatever. Really, that's the key is getting people excited about your vision. They go, oh yeah, I want in on that. I want in on you. And, and so that was really a, a big shift for me. And so, so you asked about ideas. So I'd like to offer, talk about up-leveling, a framework for you and, and anyone listening, is that all human creation goes through four stages. And, and I, I say human creation, it includes problem solving, right? Because problem solving, I don't like the state of affairs now, so I've got to create a better state of affairs, right? And so all human creation, um, doesn't matter whether you're creating a, a, a birthday party for your best friend uh, or, or launching a company or whatever you're doing, human creation of all types goes through four stages. I call them the four I's like the letter I. So the first I is intention. You can just, huh, I want to go to Mars. Or, I want to throw a surprise birthday party for my best friend. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. You set an intention. And really, I could write a whole book just on that part. But okay, that's pretty basic. Set the intention. Then, second I, imagination. Right? We, we imagine, okay, What's this going to look like? What's going to Mars going to look like? Or what's, what's launching my startup going to look like? Or, or a birthday party for my best friend? Or, or a dinner date with the person I love? Whatever it is, imagine. And then the third eye is ingenuity. Okay, I've imagined what I want to do, and I know what I want to do. Hmm, how am I going to pull this off? Right? 
oh, okay, if we're going to get a rocket to Mars, I guess I'm going to need some rocket scientists and I'm going to need some funding for that company. Or if I'm throwing a birthday party, where am I going to, the, the ingenuity phase and the fourth phase, the fourth I is implementation, right? I know I need rocket scientists, which ones do I go after? Or I know I want to do a birthday party for my best friend and what restaurant do I do it? And, and then enrolling the restaurant in your plan. Like, hey, we'd like to throw a birthday party. I realize you don't stay open after 10, but could you once this one time and enrolling others, right? And, and, and so inhalation and exhalation and the exhalation is very much on the ingenuity and the, the implementation phase. And, the, you know, and, and this what I, to tie that into the previous thought about success in life always involves others. And the, and the most successful, think about someone like Elon Musk. He's able to excite everybody about anything. He could say, hey, I'm going to, I think I'm going to go camping in Canada. Everyone goes, oh, my God, what's going on with camping in Canada? Let's all go camping in Canada, right? And so he's really mastered that, that ability to get people excited. And, again, it doesn't matter whether you're trying to get someone excited about going on a date with you or or invest in your company or someone to work for the company that you've just started. The ability to get others excited. And it, and that always involves images. Mm. Wow, yes, that would be cool. And then the listener plants him or herself or the audience, oh yeah, I could see that happening. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go to Mars. Let's go to Canada and camp. <laughs> Probably be a wild time with Elon Musk, but uh, camping in Canada, and uh, so, so there. So that ties those thoughts, right? And and it, I think everything's pretty simple in life, actually. If you boil it down, and you have to boil it down so that you can function at the highest level. Really, you think about the highest achievers; they're they're always really simple people. They've got like one or two ideas. And they're just working it to death. And, um, and everyone else is really complicated. This is really complicated. Anyway. No, yeah. Adam, I, I would love for you to exp expand on simplicity because I feel like today we see so many bullet point blogs, tweets where it's like, here are the rules for success. And you study someone like Munger or like Buffett. Take a simple idea. Take it seriously. Yeah. The, the, the years. My of, favorite quote. Yeah. That is my favorite quote. So it's the, the years of thinking and that they've put towards that simple idea that they're taking seriously. I'm wondering, mm -hmm. how do you get to the other side of complexity where it is simple, right? Oliver Wendell Holmes, yes, I know that quote too. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, so I'm wondering how you think that through. So, so yeah, so, so you just quoted Oliver Wendell Holmes, right? You know, his famous quote, uh, I don't care anything about the complexity of, on, sorry, the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'd give anything for the simplicity on the far side of complexity. Yeah. And Stephen Jobs wrote about that, right? He said, simplicity is so hard to achieve because I was about to say, 
that you have to say no to so many things. But really, it's not that. And even Buffett said that. And with respect, because he's, he's Zeus, right? And there's no one better. <laughs> and he's such a genius. And he said that the most successful people say no to many things. And I would reframe it. I'd say, actually, you're saying yes to the, the couple of things that are so important. You're not saying no to that. It's just, I'd love to. You're, and then focusing on that simple thing. And, and the, the simple thing really is your, 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 it, the ability to focus on a single thing or two is, um, is also a, a real superpower edge. Because most people, they, okay, that's nice, that one thing, but if that's good, why don't I just add a couple things to it? Boom, you've already lost it. And, and um, so, yeah, they, you, you read about anything. It doesn't matter whether it's sports science or entrepreneurs, they got a couple of key ideas that they just keep applying and they get really good at applying it. And you, you, don't, you don't need a lot of, if we were Batman, we wouldn't need many gadgets in our utility belt, right? He's got all these little gadget things. Hey, you only need one or two, right? I, I said once, I think it was on with Tim Ferriss, I, I said, you only need one hammer, like Thor's hammer. That's it. That's really good. And, uh, and then you, over the years, you really hone that hammer. You get really good at it. And then really their genius, the, the top achievers, is just waiting for the opportunity to use the hammer. Hmm. I'm wondering about, you mentioned being able to chisel away and, and get to that, that excellent hammer as years progress here. And so I'm thinking about what that exploration period is like, right? Like you, you've done such a uh, miraculous job in that apprenticeship up to mastery. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering for someone who's trying to, to reach that level of mastery, how do you approach those early days where do, or should you be testing more things to really chisel away or is it singular oh, focus? Yeah. Well, so I think there's a natural process that goes on. That's such a, a, really a profound question. And I, you know, when I was setting out on this journey, life, I, di I didn't, it wasn't like I had any path, really. There's a lot of stumbling around. I go, oh, I'm pretty good at this, or why don't I try that? And then you begin to cull and realize what you're good at, what you enjoy spending your time on, the, the people you enjoy spending your time with, and, and, and slowly something begins to take shape. A career or a life path or a mission, really a mission. And, and, um, and then as that begins to take shape, then that provides a, a North Star and a winnowing away of everything else because you go, okay, I kind of like what I built here. Is that going to fit in? Is that going to up-level what I have here, which is working pretty well? And so and then you get really ruthless about it, right? And, and so as, I think it's an organic process like that. And, you know, I, I think, not I think, I know. Um, you have to be mindful about it. Right. Initially, there's some casting about and like you don't know what you're good at yet or what you like doing. And then 
the world presents opportunities of one sort or another. And, and so, so there's that, that sort of mix between what you're good at, what you like to do, and, and then the opportunities that are, are presented to you. Then, but you know, you get, you get the sense that if, um, if any of the greats had chosen something else, some other field, they would have been really good at that field too. Maybe not, you know, like, um, shoot, uh, Michael Jordan was not a great baseball player. He was pretty good, you know, and it's silly to move away from basketball, as it turned out. But, and, and it's the same drive in the principles, you know, and, and a lot of it is self-management. So, so yeah, and I, I think you just keep coming back to it. Just gradually and incrementally and you you just get better and better at the thing you discover you're you're good at and love to do similar to joseph campbell's follow your bliss you said something a second ago that just piqued my interest you said it's something they keep coming back to you're such a beautiful thinker i would love to know what what ideas do you keep coming back to so wow okay that's so I've never thought about that, right? So, so, let, so I, I'm just going to throw out some things that, as they occur to me spontaneously right now. So, so there's the notion of who am I in the world? What statement? What statement is Adam making to the world? Now I say a statement. And so, if you view the world as a conversation. Everybody's doing their thing. Every so conversation is a metaphor, obviously. And so, so Buffett is saying a certain is adding something to the, the global conversation. So is Elon Musk. Everybody, for better or worse, is making a statement to the world about what they what they view is important or and 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 then now. If everybody is saying X, or many people are saying X, then they're not really adding to the conversation. Like, yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm with X. I, I agree with that. And, and then the question is, so what, what are you saying to the world, right? For example, you, Sean, who are you in the world? And, and actually, even in, in our contact, and even that you have this podcast, I have an idea of who you are in the world. Right, and sharing knowledge, for example, very important. With people. Finding best practices. Oh, that's wisdom. I want to share that with people who, like me, are a seeker. And so, so I, I think that's been a part of my my journey. You know, like ideas um, is what am I saying to the world, and. Um, and I, I think more in terms of frameworks. So let me throw out some frameworks and ideas, right? So I gave the framework of inhalation and exhalation. Uh, here's another framework I like. Everything, every moment, every encounter is an invitation. For example, right now, there are other invitations I'm receiving right now, like the couch behind me. It's inviting me, hey, you want to use this moment to take a nap? 
And I decline that invitation because I'm spending it with you, right? And anyone you meet, that person is an invitation. Could be an invitation to, hey, want to have a coffee? Or hey, want to get into an argument with me? Right? There are people who, that, that's the invitation of the moment. And, or an opportunity. Anything is an invitation. And then you have to decide, do I want to accept that invitation? Or maybe I should make a counteroffer. No. No, I don't want to get into an argument with you. I decline that invitation to fight. But I will counteroffer with an invitation to discuss this. Or whatever. And so you have to be aware the one, right? The person, the individual. I have to be, I, Adam, have to be aware of what others are inviting me to do. And most of the time, they're not even aware of it. And, and, or they may be aware on one level, but not on multiple levels. And I have to be aware of what I'm inviting them to do. And, and I'm generally more aware of what they're inviting me to do than they are. Actually, for example, most people, I invite them to have fun, to play. That's really, that's another key theme of mine, idea, that, that the goal in life is to play. That's the highest gratitude for the life we've been given, play. And the importance of play. And I, I said once that, you know, we have to learn how to take serious things more playfully and playful things more seriously. You know, think about sports. There's nothing important about kicking a ball on a field. <laughs> In fact, it seems ridiculous if anyone didn't know that that was an organized game. But we take that silly thing, kicking a ball around, very seriously. Right? And, and so really play is right, the, the hedonist philosophers in ancient Greece talked about pleasure being the highest uh, 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 goal in life. And they meant spiritual pleasure, by the way. Um, and, and, and I would say play, which brings me back to my epiphany about six years ago of others. You can't play alone. And, and so, for example, um, so notice that my ideas, Sean, are actually things that I live. They're not ideas. I'm actually living the idea. So I go to a restaurant and I arrive before my date and, uh, and the, the waitress comes over and I'll say something clever, some clever banter to engage, to invite her to play with me for this little moment. She'll either detect the invitation and accept it. She may detect it and not be interested. Again, just to play, no other agenda, right? Not, not like flirty, like to play. And, um, and, and uh, so really I, I get into a, a cab. Okay, I guess Ben, my stepping into the cab, same framework, is an invitation. 
I could close my eyes for the 20 minutes it's going to take to get, I could pick up my cell phone. My cell phone has invited me to check my email messages or whatever. And there's a person in the car that maybe it would be fun for me to play with this person. So I'll make some random offhand comment meant to engage playful banter, right? Some, some kind of play. And the person will either be preoccupied with driving. I don't want to interfere with their, really, their driving. And, and or will decline. That's okay. Okay, that person declined my invitation to play. What can I do? I could, again, there are all kinds of invitations in every moment. And, and, and even life itself is an invitation. You know, the, the grand scheme of things, right? Your life, talking to you, Sean, and my life is an invitation, make of it what you will. And, um, and for me, the, the revelation about five or six years ago was play. You, you want to do anything, you're a master uh, quoter. Um, uh, one of my favorites was Churchill. Uh, uh, the, he said, um, war is a game played with a smile. This is during the horrors of World War II, right? War is a game played with a smile. And if you can't smile, step aside. And again, the most serious things you have to approach playfully. And you're not, you're not making light of it. It's precisely because it's so serious, you have to be playful with it. And I, here's another, you say the ideas that, and again, my ideas are not in here, I'm living them. Um, the, the notion of the playful state is the powerful state. And you watch any old Bruce Lee movies and you watch him moving around, he's playful. It's not, <clears throat> not serious. And, or Muhammad Ali, like dancing around, okay. They know, ooh, if I get hit, I'm, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so, and yet they're playful because they know that's the most relaxed state and the most powerful state. And, and yeah, so I, those are some of the the important ideas that I that I live, you know. And 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 Sean, it's important that they're not like ideas. Like you know, you mentioned these you know, these big thick books, you know, like how to do X, Y, and Z. And it's, oh man, if I had the time to read that book, I. And even if you did, really, I'm not going to mention any names. But there's a very big, thick book written by a very successful person about like, <laughs> um, how to live life. And if it's that complicated, if that's big and thick, the subtext mes message to the reader is, I'm screwed. Because there's no way, I'm going to have a hard time understanding that big, thick book. There's no way I could remember it in real time. Right? Day to day. It's no good having the ideas in your head and you're not using them as we camp in Canada with Elon Musk <laughs> or go to Mars with him. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it has to be ideas you can use. Yeah. I'm wondering for those ideas you can use, how do you get to that understanding around play? Does it take years of almost doing the opposite, right? Like going through that pain in order to come to the other side. So it's, yeah, so I, 
I don't know. That's a really very profound question. I don't know. And, and give me a second. I'm going to process this. I think most of the time that that does become the consequence. In other words, there's got to be a better way of doing things, of living, than pain and suffering, being serious. And so, ah, which brings me to another one of my ideas, which is, again, it's not ideas like in their head, but life principles is... Um, if you're not getting the results you want, change what you're doing. It's really that simple. And just keep changing and tinkering until you find something that it works. And once you work, you find your hammer, stick with that. And, and you'll see that we keep circling back to the same few yeah. ideas. It's really not that many ideas that, that, uh, that or principles, it's really a mindset. You know, for example, Sean, when I sat down to have a conversation with you, I've, I have been equally excited for this moment. Now, the people listening don't know that Sean and I have been dancing for like, what, five years? Yeah. Uh, we got to do this, right? <laughs> okay, and here we are doing it, right? Um, wow, I just want to change of thought. Mm talking about the principles. Hell. Oh, yes. But it's really a mindset, right? And so when I sat down today to have this conversation, my only goal was to play with you. That's it. Play. And, and if I'm going to talk to an investor looking for funds, my goal is to have invite that person to play with me. And and, and by the way, that signals a lot that I'm confident enough in what I'm doing. I'm not even, not even pitching the person. Now, what the hell? He's not even asking me for my money. He just keeps telling jokes and we're having a great time. And ah, what the hell? I want to spend more time with this dude. And, and really that, again, it comes back to getting people excited. And so they want to spend time with you. Yeah, I want in on whatever Sean's doing. Yep, 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 yep. Let's do that. Or Adam or anybody, Elon. And uh, so, so yeah. So, so it's, 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 it's not thinking so much. It's just having ideas simple enough that you can use in your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. like in, and again, in real time. Yeah. No great... No good being a, a principle up here that you don't can actually use it. Absolutely. Uh, I'm wondering for you, because you do think so deeply and you get such clarity around your ideas. What do you make of the epiphany six years ago? Because what, when what you do you mean by make, make of it? Yeah, because you said it didn't, it kind of came out of nowhere. It was such a, such a, a life changing realization. Right. It was a complete pivot totally different from anything I'd done in my life ever before. Now, there's been a lot of work around the creative process. Bear with me, I'm gonna yeah. get to the point. So, and so, 
and there's a great book that I'm going to recommend. I think I mentioned it with Tim. It's The Act of Creation by Arthur Kessler. It's a big old thick book, but one very well worth reading, The Act of Creation. Uh, and and so don't be daunted by the by the thickness. It's, it's really a very interesting read. And so much work has been done on the creative process, by which I mean like solving a problem. Like, oh. And so it involves usually like you attack the problem logically and you think it, think it, think it really, really hard as much as you can. And it's such a daunting problem or challenge and you thought it through. And then all of a sudden one day you're you're taking a bath or you're walking with your best friend or camping in Canada <laughs> or you're doing something and all of a sudden, boom, it just occurs to you out of nowhere, right? And so the epiphany was related to a prior process, right? And because your unconscious the whole time has been working on it, even when you're not working on it, right? Oh, your unconscious is working on it. And, and so there was no... It wasn't like I I had set myself a question I was working at and I went, oh, yeah, play. That's what I got to do. I just have to play. And, and in fact, <laughs> invite others to play. Not even necessarily with me, but in their own lives. And, and that that is I think the highest form of being. And... And if you think about it, at the end of the day, what's civilization for? To free us up so we can play more. That ought to be the goal. People get caught up in this or that, and they're not having fun. You know, I just used the word fun. So um, if one were to look at all the interviews of, of Warren Buffett, all of them, over the decades and is, is um, more in his public speaking, but also in his, uh, his uh, letters, stuff, right? The, the shareholder letters and stuff. There's one word that recurs more than any other, <laughs> fun. He's having a blast. Yeah. But that's, it's real clear. He's just having a blast. And so, so I, I think, if you're not having a blast, there's, there's something wrong. And, and anyone who's not playful and really looking forward to their day, when I say looking forward, I mean it like this. When I'm by myself, I'm in inhalation mode. Then when I go outside, in a sense, it's a kind of exhalation, but also I can't wait to walk out my door because I know there are lots of people out there I can play with. Even pa passing strangers on a street, just, you know, raise an eyebrow, just acknowledging another human being. And that, that little half second is a form of play. And, and, and it, Really, it's a whole philosophy. There's a, there's a term for it. It's called um, homo ludens, the Latin phrase, right? There's homo sapiens, which is the, the intelligent animal, which we have to question these days. But homo ludens 
is the animal that plays. But in fact, all, actually most higher animals play. And in fact, if you look at how, say, a lion cub learns how to be an, a lion, like an adult lion, it's by play, hmm. right? Yeah. And so play is great learning mode. So, but it wasn't, really, it was an epiphany. I just, there was nothing attached to it. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it, so it was night and day for me. A life lived in my head in ideas and pretty serious. I thought, I would have a good time, but and then it shifted really one day. And that's just the, everything I do now is related to that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the articulation into the creative process and aha type moments and how you need to let that subconscious mind go to work. Can you even go further on how you think about using the, the unconscious or the subconscious mind and tapping that's, into it? That's a good question. So, so really, I'm, I'm just pausing for a second to which entry vector into that topic I'm going to choose. So the way to think about it, you know, we, we exalt our conscious minds, right? When we go to grade school and high school and college and grad school, spend a lifetime developing our conscious minds, logic stuff. And, and, and we're proud of it as individuals, right? When we acquire a certain facility using our, our minds, conscious logic and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's pretty clunky. And as, as a tool to, to, to grapple with reality. And reality is actually very complex. Now, that sounds like you like roll your eyes. Well, what the hell does that mean? Of course, it's complex. Um, but in fact, it's so complex that we actually don't deal with reality. We deal with the construct of it that we can grapple with. And there's a dude, his name is uh, Donald Hoffman, who wrote a book, really brilliant book, called The Case Against Reality. And that really we've evolved with a, a good misunderstanding of reality. I say misunderstanding because it doesn't represent, like, but we can function at a very high level. So I say all that by way of preface that there's no way logic in our conscious mind can cope with the amount of information and the complexity of the world, just no way. And also, our ideas can be mistaken. Um, and, but I'll tell you what's not mistaken is feeling states. Feeling states. And so, so, so how do we tap into our unconscious mind? And I'm going to share it with you because you asked me. And I don't think I've ever articulated this before. So now the trouble with our unconscious mind which is really the supercomputer, yeah. right? Your unconscious mind, like everyone talks, oh, you only consciously use 1%. I don't know how they come up with that number, but whatever it is, it's clear your unconscious is way more powerful, right? Think of, think of your conscious mind as like a simple abacus <laughs> or like it could do simple arithmetic. And your unconscious mind is this super complex 
like uh, 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 a parallel processing neural net that could deal with thousands of variables simultaneously. No problem. And and so again, if you think about it, um, our conscious minds evolved relatively recently in in we like logic and stuff is what I don't know. 2,000, 2,500 years, you know, Aristotle and logic and stuff. We've gotten a little better, at, but not really. It's not like we're that much wiser. But meanwhile, we, there's the untapped unconscious mind. And so how do you train the unconscious mind as consciously as, say, you would train at a sport or playing the piano? But how do I get in touch with the the instrument that is my unconscious mind. And I've done it through my body. So I don't process ideas in my head, process them in my body. And, and so, and I'm not talking about mere muscle memory, right? Like, oh, you remember a movement, right? Without being conscious that like, I don't know how I did it, but yeah, I remember the movement. Like stick shift, right? I remember, I remember as a teenager learning how to drive a stick shift car, but then I hadn't ever encountered one again for like 10 years. And I get into the car because I'd always driven automatic after that, right? I get into a stick shift car and I just, my muscles remembered what to do, even though my head didn't. And so your entire body, your sensory uh, uh, um, apparatus, your muscles and everything, they're processing all the information. Whether it wants to or not, it's just processing it, right? Our conscious mind, we have to filter out so much, right? We don't have much of a working memory. And so I say all this, punchline coming in about a minute. So when I'm reading something or reading a poem or reading an idea or looking at a a financial formula, I'm actually processing it in my body. And so when I encounter a new idea, I notice how my body feels in relation to the new idea. And then I go, oh, yes, that works. And it takes me a while to find the words and the ideas to support it. But it really, it's, it's kind of infallible. Hmm. There's a... Um, uh, Einstein, not comparing myself to Einstein, but he talked about kinesthetic awareness. Yeah. And he, I think he was getting at the same thing. That, that really you have to know in any given situation, again, even reading a book or an essay or whatever it is, a 10K report, whatever it is, allow your body to process. And along with your head, I'm not saying don't use your head but I don't use my head too much. I actually more rely on my body and that's the unconscious mind. But then it's doing whatever calculations it needs to do. Hmm. So there's a, a, a fellow, um, Daniel Temet, I forget. He's a mathematical savant. And uh, I remember seeing a documentary on him. I, I guess he's in his early forties now, something like that. Uh, and when he was five years old, um, 
he had a, a brain seizure, an epileptic fit or something, he had a brain seizure and it rewired his brain. So before, normal five-year-old kid, afterwards, he's a mathematical savant, like boom, the next day. And uh, so, for example, I could ask him, Daniel, what's the, maybe David, but it's a DT. It's, um, what's the 17th root of four? Not square root. What's the 17th root of four? He would just go, oh, 1.16 and just reel it off like that, like that quickly. And you think, wow, he's like doing all that in his head. No, this is his process. It's so cool. So, so he's being interviewed on this documentary. And I said, how the hell do you do that? And he said, well, every number is um, a bit of a colored blob. Hmm. The interviewer said, what? He said, well, think Play-Doh. So, so, so the interviewer says, so what's the number eight? You know, just throwing out a number, right? I can't remember what he said exactly, but he went, oh yeah, eight. I kind of like the number eight. It's sort of a bluish ball and there are two yellow sort of ear-like things on it. That's eight. And if you were to ask him a year from now, what's eight? He'd say exactly the same thing. Oh, I, I told you, it's that blue thingy, with the two yellow. And uh, what's 12? Oh, 12. Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of black. There's some red on the bottom and green on the sides. Okay, so get this. They said, so how do you do your calculations? He said, I just see the shapes that kind of mixed into each other and out pops a new colored blob. Hmm. And I'm just reading off what the blob is. He has no idea. There's no, it's not like he's doing calculations you and I would understand really fast. He's not. He has no clue how he's doing it. And clearly that's his unconscious mind, right? And, and I mean, it's really incredible. And so, so yeah. So I, I think that's a really important, like anyone interested in maximizing who they are, right? The instrument that, that they've been given, born into this world with, the body, the head, the emotions, all of it, making the most use of it, you really got to train the unconscious because it's so powerful. And uh, yeah, and, and for me, the access is through my body. And I, I think that's a pretty easy one for most people. Adam, I'm wondering for you, I know your background with chess, did you have an intuitive kinesthetic feeling around pieces on the board? So it's interesting. I, no, I didn't. And I say interesting because one of my um, non-gifts is um, being able to visualize. I can feel things right in my body, but I have a hard time visualizing them. Hmm. So there, there's a kind of chess that's called blindfold chess. And the, the world record 
imagine think thinking how complex a chessboard is with all the pieces you're playing a game there are lots of things you got to remember i think the world record is by a guy named george koltanowski who's good never like a world champion or something but boy his blindfold chess i think his record for blindfold chess blindfold chess is um Four hundred and twenty-four games simultaneously. Oh, Imagine this. In his mind, he's walking to the next yeah. board. He's got his eyes closed, so he's not actually walking. He's in his seat, and goes, "Okay, board number two hundred and seventeen." And you see it perfectly. That's yeah, remarkable. Remarkable. Yeah. I don't have that, and 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 like I'm actually kind of. It's hard for me actually to visualize board. Even one the board in front of me is <laughs> kind of hard to visualize, and I. Even though I've acquired, I'm pr- I'm pretty good, chess master, um, and to get much better, I'd really have to train in it. But actually, I I I don't have. You really have to be able to do that to be able to really visualize. So I there there are mental shortcuts I use to to do that. Like I'll I'll verbalize things and I can remember the words, but I can't actually remember the sequential things is as you say so the answer is no i actually have a hard time doing that hmm. and uh but you find workarounds yeah. well I'm, I'm wondering for you then did did that weakness did that turn into a strength for you within chess oh so here huh it's so funny you should talk about weaknesses turning into strengths i think all the greats that's what they did Oh, I, they my ears are, are peaked up now. Look, look. Yeah, they took a weakness and turned it into a strength. Okay, I'll give you an example. Wayne Gretzky. Right? Yeah. And so Wayne Gretzky, um, I said the Edmonton Oilers, I think was his team. Anyway, he yep. enters the NHL. And, um, and he, um, obviously to get to the NHL, you, you pretty good, right? You get to the professional leagues. You're very, very good. And he realized physically, there's no way I can get a hand. I'm not going to last that long in this game because he's, you know, by like normal human standards, he's a pretty big guy. I don't know, 6'1", 6'2". He's not that big. And there are lots of bigger guys. And hockey is a brutal sport, right? So he's thinking, okay, I got to develop a style of play that minimizes the amount of hits I get, <laughs> right? So his weakness, his lack of strength, I think he was like the weakest man on his team, like in the, in the weight room, like, ah, wait. And um, so he, his style of play evolved out of that weakness and he became the best ever, right? The great one. And, and it evolved out of like, okay, avoiding contact with others, <laughs> right? And, and uh, for me, we talked about simplicity. I have actually a, a very limited uh, working memory. I can't think of too many things at once, same time. I know many people, I remember like dozens of things. Whether I have a hard time functioning. And because remember your, your thinking, your conscious thinking, you have your working memory and it's the ideas and it, the more ideas and things you're trying to think about, the less processing power you have left over to kind of deal with it. And I've, I was always really 
keenly aware of that. So I was trying to simplify things down to like one or two or three ideas max. And then I can really go deep on those ideas. So the weakness that I can't like, think of too much at one time has forced me to simplify things. Because hmm. it's the only way I could, could act, operate. And really, you'll look at anyone, uh, for example, Bruce Lee. One of my favorites. Mine too. Yeah. Mine too. Um, I, I know his daughter, Shannon. She's really devoted to passing on his legacy. And, and you know. And so Bruce Lee is, was not a big guy. And he was physically as strong as you could possibly be, probably pound for pound of any human being ever. But it's, so... What could he do to deal with that weakness? Small? Very strong, but not strong as much bigger was speed. That, so he focused on developing his speed. And I don't know if you've ever seen um, Bruce Lee videos slowed down like 10x, mm-hmm. but even when it's slowed down 10x, right? So it's, <laughs> It's still hard to follow <laughs> when it's 10 times slower than he's actually moving. Wait, in other words, his fist is going out and come back so fast that even when the, the film is slowed down 10 X, you have a hard time following it. That's how fast he was. And of course, power is velocity is a component of power, right? And, and so his weakness, right? Lack of size. And I don't know what, five, seven, something ish. And, um, and he was again, pound for pound, super strong. Mm, but if he was up against two, a guy, 250 pounds, he's not as strong as that guy, but he was probably 20 times faster. <laughs> so the power advantage he had was he's 10 times more powerful than the bigger guy. Mm. Right. Uh, yeah, Muggsy Bogues, right? The basketball yeah. player is 5'1". How? That's a pretty big weakness. I say weakness in professional basketball. But for him, it was a strength because all the other players now have to play his game. Like he was always getting fouled because <laughs> you didn't see him, <laughs> right? Because they're 7'1". And it, oh, and so one thing he developed, because he knew he would be fouled a lot, is he was the best free throw shooter in basketball. <laughs> it's like 93, because, okay, I'm going to get that ball. There's going to be a lot. I'm going to be at the free throw line lots, and I want to nail every single shot. I think it was free throw percentage was like 93 or something. I can't remember exactly. It's distant memory. but So there, his weakness, lack of height, was his strength. You know, your weakness forces you to find workarounds. And those workarounds are so powerful that you're better off than someone who didn't need the workaround. Adam, there's a story of yours that I think provides some really interesting insights. And it's around weaknesses and workarounds. And it's your freshman year in homeroom playing a game of chess. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you, yeah. can you just tell the story and, and I, 
I'm more curious of what it led to. So, but that brings back memories. So it's a freshman year in high school. And, uh, and again, take a simple idea. All these things are going to come back to us, right? And so um, it's freshman year in high school. It's the first day. And, uh, and then it was homeroom. And homeroom is usually 20 minutes of nothing, right? Administrative. No one pays attention, right? It's kind of like uh, when a plane, uh, you know, when, that, when they tell you the seat belts, everything, no one's paying attention. <laughs> and yet they have to go through the, the, the motions. So homeroom was that. So first day and the kid in front of me, I can't think of his name right now. Anyway, kid in front of me, um, it's always in the second row. He was in the front row. He turns around because we got 20 minutes to waste. And um, he has a little magnetic chest set. Like it's like about that big, really pretty, pretty small, like, I don't know, six inches by six inches. He turns around and it's the, with the board set up, these little magnetic pieces. And he said, uh, hey, you know how to play chess? And I said, yes, I do. Because my father had once explained the rules, but I had never played a chess game. <laughs> it's like someone who says, do you know how to play baseball? And you go, yes, I do. Yeah, like you looked at the rules in a book and you saw a couple of games. I didn't know anything, really. I, I knew how the pieces moved. I, I knew what the concept of checkmate, but I, I didn't know anything else. And uh, so he beats me in like five or six moves. I just, and he kind of gloated. And I said, oh, I want another game. And he beat me in another, probably the same five moves, probably following the same stupid trap. And... Um, and every day that week, that's how we would spend homework, playing this game or two or three. And he beat me every. And at the end of that week, I resolved by the end of the year, I'm going to beat him. But I'm telling you, that was the sole goal. By the end of the year, I want to beat this kid because all I cared about back then was swimming. And I was training four to uh, max four to five and a half hours a day, seven days a week, most of the year. And, uh, um, but so my only goal was I'm going to beat this kid. I just, he was so gloating about it. Like, loser. And um, so I went to the local bookstore. And uh, they had, I think, I'm going to buy a book on chess. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> I'm uh, 13 years old. And uh, so I buy a book. The only, they had one chess book. It was called Profile of a Prodigy. And the people who are listening to me talk right now, you think, oh, I don't care about Adam's chess. But the story is very interesting, and you know it, Sean, right? So, so about how a simple thing can lead to really cool things in your life. So, um, so anyway, it's a book. It's called Profile of a Prodigy. And it was a book on the life of Bobby Fischer. Now, this is... Hold on. Four years before he was to win the world championship. So there's a book on his life story, but he's not even world champion yet. So I pick up this book and I, it's, it's, um, it's a, a biography, but at the time he was 25 years old. That's it. Right? And, um, and, uh, Again, four years before he was going to win the world championship. So, so I'm, 
I pick up this book, again, not knowing anything. It's not a book how to play chess. It's a book about a chess player, but it was the only one in the bookstore. I lived in Evanston, Illinois, right outside Chicago, where Northwestern is. So anyway, so I pick up this book and I read this story about this chess player dude, Bobby Fischer. I didn't know who he was. And, uh, but I was so impressed. I thought, wow, he's the best chess player ever. What did I know? I, it wasn't like it was a student of the game, really. And at the back of the book, there were 75 games that he had played. Um, he had started playing when he was, well, he actually started when he was six, but in tournaments and stuff where there are records of it when he was, I think 11, 10 or 11. And so this, he's now 25 years old, he's 14 years worth of games, then 75 of them were in the back of this book. So we're getting close to interesting punchlines for those of you listening. So the, the games are without any explanation. It's just a list of the games. The way if you were a music student, you know, oh, here are 75 songs, the lyrics written by John Lennon or whatever. And I would play over the games. I didn't know anything. Didn't he say, oh, this is why he made that move. I just played over the games over and over. So I'd come home from my second workout in the afternoon. I'd get home and um, I'd eat dinner and spend like three or four hours at night playing over those games. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, again, my only goal was I'm going to beat this kid in homeroom. And, uh, and then there was another book actually that came out about the same year called My 60 Memorable Games. And this was by Bobby Fischer, where he actually annotated 60 of his games. Again, people are, who are listening now, you're going, oh, who cares about these games? Okay, well, I was so impressed by those games. Again, I don't know anything, right? I've been playing, been playing chess, which is to say with the kid in homeroom, um, for a couple months. And I said, oh, I got to find all of his games. So those, so there were 60 in the, in the second book, but a lot of them were duplicates. So in book form, those two books were the only two books that had his games. They're about 100 games. So every weekend, I'd take the train to downtown Chicago and go to the public library, and I'd go through back issues of chess magazines. There's also a library in Evanston. I would go through that, but I'd gone through other magazines. So imagine, like, prospecting for gold. I would read through hundreds of magazines to spot a game that he had played, say, five years ago, and I'd write it down, okay? So now I have a notebook of about, I don't know, 700 of his games that he had played that I had personally transcribed, and I'd just play them over and over, and I started to get good. <laughs> and uh, so I, then I became really good, and it turns out my chess team was also very good, my high school chess team. And when I was a junior, so it's just two years later, I'm with seven other guys flying from Evanston to New York City for the high school nationals. And, um, and again, I never had a coach. I never read any books on how to play the game. All I did was just play over his games, right? It's kind of a, not an efficient way to learn. And um, anyway, so it's now the high school nationals. And uh, there's seven of us. The top four of us will be a team consists of four players. So the top four of the eight 
sorry, there's seven others, there are eight of us. The top four of us would be the team from Evanston High School that would represent Evanston, right? The top four scores by the end of the tournament. So get this, this is actually a very cute, fun story, even if you don't care about chess. So it's an eight round tournament. And after seven rounds, we were so far ahead of the next place team that we went out and celebrated. It's not the final round. <laughs> and so, so we were three points ahead of Stuyvesant, which is a high school in New York, and which is a whopping big lead because only four scores count. So we had three already going into the final round. Stuyvesant, if we just won one more game, we're national champs. The best Stuyvesant could do, and they'd have to win every game, which is very hard, would tie us. So our first board, a guy named Harold, draws really quickly. So now we're three and a half points ahead of number second place team. <laughs> I'm getting to Bobby Fisher in about 60 seconds. So um, one by one, every one of us lost. So in the final round, out of eight points, we scored a half point and eight potential points. And Stuyvesant won every single one of their games, mm. like they, which is very hard to do because um, the odds are 50-50 that you're going to win a game, right? So uh, it's one half to the fourth. The odds were one in 16 that they would win every game. <laughs> anyway, so it was a, such a flu. And we'd celebrated the night before because we thought, yay, there's no way anyone can catch us. And we'd lost by half a point. By the way, the PS is next year we won and, 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 and uh, we set a record that stands to this day. We, we crushed everything. But anyway, so it's now the next day. So it's, it's, we've just lost the national championship. Like, oh, mm, I'm not going to say, but really pissed. And um, so the rest of my team flew back to New York. This is a Sunday. It's actually Easter Sunday. The rest of my team flew back to New York, sorry, back to Evanston from New York. And I stayed in New York because my parents lived in New York, actually. I was living in Evanston, going to high school there, but my parents lived in New York. So it's Easter Sunday. I'm 16 years old. And, uh, and I'm spending it with my mother. And it's a beautiful April day. And, and uh, we head towards Central Park. And we were at <clears throat> 34th and 6th. I don't know if you listeners know New York. It's a very busy intersection near Macy's, not far from the Empire State Building. Very busy, and it's Easter Sunday. I don't know, probably on that corner, 10,000 people, right? Like packed. So we're waiting for the light to change. And to this day, still, I don't know why, my eye traveled slightly to the left, so diagonally across from Macy's, and in that sea of people, I spot Bobby Fisher, my hero. And he was a recluse, like spotting him. What are the odds, right? Hmm. So I turned to my mother and said, Mom, I know I said I would spend today with you, but that's Bobby. I'll see you later, right? So I'm dashing across the, you know, like dodging cars like I'm a, like a cop, you know, like chasing, you know, and I'm like, nah, because I, I have like a few seconds because you get lost in the crowd again, right? He was six, six, two, six, three. 
So he was tall, but I still thought, oh, you're going to lose him in the crowd. And I'm never going to get this chance again. So, um, right, my hero. All I had done for the last three years was play over his games. So, so I, I've run up to him. You might think yeah, somebody would say, oh, my gosh, Mr. Fisher, you're, you're my hero. You're like, oh, I, just, I think you're the best, right? They, they gush something like that. But no, I've been playing his game so many times. That's all I did mm-hmm. that I knew each one of them by heart. So I, and I had all these questions, right? And here's the dude who played the games. So I said, Mr. Fisher, Mr. Fisher, in 1962, <laughs> when you played Ryshevsky in the U.S. Championship, <clears throat> why did you play Pawn to King Rook 3? I'm with six. He looks at me like I'm some alien, right? Like, how does this kid, A, know who I am? <laughs> A year later, he was the most famous person on the planet. Number two was Muhammad Ali. So when he won the world championship, he was literally did a pulse. He was the most famous person, but this was a year and a half before. And so no one would have recognized unless you played chess. So here's this kid who not only recognized me in the crowd, but is citing a game off the top of his head that I played, you know, like years and years ago. And uh, he said, uh, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have lunch. Want to join me? Just like that. I said, yes, I would. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he was my mentor after that. And um, I, the next year, before we won the national championship, we had to fly back to New York, the team. And he was uh, preparing for the Spassky match, the, the world championship, which is a pretty serious time. The world championship is on the line. And I got to spend two weeks with him as he prepared. So I was with him in his room as he studied Spassky's games Mm. for two weeks. And uh, we played a lot of blitz chess, which is like you have to finish your entire game in in five minutes. And uh, because I knew all of his games by heart and all his openings, in fact, in some ways, I'm a little better than he did. (laughs) Um, I would play his own moves against him. And so he's really playing himself. So at a certain point, I would blunder or something. And, and um, yeah, anyway, so that's, that's how I, the only reason it was worth, you know, now I'm addressing the, the, someone listening to this, is, is how a, a simple passion that you throw yourself into, really throw yourself into, and then you're open to possibilities. And, and um, that really amazing things can happen. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's a really special moment for me that I had earned because I knew all his games by heart, right? I, I had earned, like, it wasn't just that I was a fanboy. Well, this kid knows everything I've ever played, and I know only a few of those games have been published in books. How the heck has he done this? So, so there, yeah. When opportunity meets preparation. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. 
If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.